Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Andrew. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Keir Starmer's position, and you ask us, what would the government gain by scrapping the Northern Ireland Protocol? So there's lots to talk about today after a pretty big week in politics. I mean, we're, we're recording on Friday morning and it feels like ages ago, though it was only Tuesday that we had the Queen's speech, a list of rather half-hearted and scattered ideas for legislation from the government. But nevertheless, the spotlight has very much been on the Labour Party. Keir Starmer and his deputy, Angela Rayner, have promised to resign if the Durham police investigation into what's now known as Beergate results in fines. And there are various sort of interpretations going around of this decision, aren't there? Because, you know, some say it marks the end of Starmer's squeaky clean law abiding image as Mr. Rules, as Lisa Nandy described him, or that it's this sort of smart dividing line that he's drawing between himself as this principled, sincere lawyer and a dishonest prime minister who's not only already Mm. been fined, but he's been insisting that he wouldn't resign over Partygate. So, Andrew, you wrote uh, the cover story for this week's issue on this decision and its implications. What's your take on this decision? I don't think it was a brilliant, clever coup. I think it was the result of days of agonising and panic and that horrible feeling when you realise the Daily Mail has its teeth in your buttock and you can't get rid of it. Um, That's what was going on, I think. I have to say, you talked about the dividing line, however, and I would say that dividing line is still there. I mean, Mm. I personally, I do think that Keir Starmer is a decent fundamentally rules-based, rules-respecting politician in public service for all the right reasons and so forth. And we cannot say quite the same about the Prime Minister, to say the least. So I I do think the dividing line is there. And he must feel, I know I've spoken to him, he feels not only wretched, but very angry about what's happened. He is personally sure that he will be acquitted, as it were, by the police. They will find there was no rule broken and therefore that he isn't in trouble. And I believe him when he says, I'm pretty sure of that. You know, I'm going to be fine because no rules were broken. The reason that I'm sceptical about the outcome of this and the the front of the magazine sceptical and the piece was sceptical is that it's clear that the stories about what was going on came from disaffected Labour staffers and people who were, because it was only Labour Party people at the meeting and the people therefore who were talking to the to the newspapers, and the mail in particular, by definition, are disaffected Labour staffers. And we know there has been a really long and increasingly angry confrontation between Labour staff and the hierarchy about pay and conditions and the prospect of redundancies and all of that. 
And in that situation, I would have thought if you were Keir, you do not know what's going to be said and what's going to come next. You don't know whether people are going to say the same thing to cause you trouble. And therefore, I suspect the note taking by the Durham police and the interviews that will follow are a bit more complicated than Labour thinks. That's so interesting. I suppose it's given us insight into a quite mutinous atmosphere within the Labour machine because of those things that you listed. You know, they've been cutting staff. They've been asking them to take real terms pay cuts. And of course, we know that there are a number of disgruntled ex-officials who were more in the sort of Corbynite wing of the party who may feel disaffected, but they also feel politically isolated as well. Absolutely, yes. So I think this is difficult. And I think, you know, politics is a brutal and often unfair business. But and I think in a rather brutal and unfair way, this does take a bit of the heat out of Partygate. So just at the moment when the Labour Party had this very, very useful and potentially lethal weapon to use against the Conservative Party, in effect, it blows up in their hands. And so all of those of us us who said over the years, say what you like about Boris Johnson, he's a lucky politician, I think feel a bit vindicated. Yeah, absolutely. And and however principled Keir Starmer may look by pledging that he will resign if he's fined, it also opens up that inevitable internal chatter about who his successor might be. I mean, one Labour insider joked to me that they could hear champagne corks popping in Wes Streeting's office, for example. And there <laughs> is a, there's a school of thought within the party that this is potentially sort of an opportunity for a more talented leader to, to come up through the ranks. So who is your money on? Um, I think probably on balance just about Lisa Nandy. When I wrote the piece, I went through the various options yeah. and, of course, make more enemies doing that than anything else because of all the people <laughs> you don't talk in. So I should say here that, of course, as it were, David Lammy and Yvette Cooper would be expected to be part of that too. But two things have happened since I wrote the piece. First of all, I went up to Manchester to interview Andy Burnham. Now, Andy Burnham is a really, really interesting case here because if you're interested in a more radical approach to opposition politics, things like voting reform, things like abolishing the House of Lords and replacing it with a chamber of the regions and nations, things like a more radical economic policy, then Andy Burnham's your man. He's up for all of that kind of stuff. He's talked about it openly, talks to me about it this week. And after the local elections, if you look at the the numbers of what would happen in a general election, according to the clever people who study the numbers in that way, then we are heading towards some kind of hung parliament in which the Conservatives do not have enough votes to actually hold power, but the opposition parties would have to work together. And in those circumstances, the ideas of somebody like Andy Burnham are handcrafted almost to reach out to the Lib Dems and indeed possibly to the SNP as well and the Greens. And I put it to him this week that that was so. And he said, yes, he believed in opposition parties working together, breaking down some of the tribal boundaries. Again, not the kind of thing you'd hear in that way from any Westminster Labour Mm. leader. So he's a really interesting figure. However, unfortunately, he also said to me that he wasn't going to leave his job as mayor of Greater Manchester before the term ended, which is another two years. Um, and and seek to go back to the House of Commons quickly so that he could take part in such a thing and pledged his loyalty to to Keir Starmer. So I don't think Annie Burnham in the short term, although by far the most interesting candidate, is the person who's going to go for it. But he was very, very clear and specific about his admiration for Lisa Nandy. And Mm -hmm. so I think Lisa Nandy, in my view, starts to move ahead as the likeliest contender. 
And what's interesting, actually, is that there were reports that Lisa Nandy, sort of over the course of the campaign ahead of the local elections, was warning Keir Starmer, look, don't go too hard on Partygate. It gives all politicians a bad name. And that's something that I picked up. I went reporting around a suburb of Wolverhampton in a red wall seat ahead of the locals. And people were sort of saying, well, you know, Labour would have done the same as the Tories, you know, in terms of lockdown breaking and things. They're all the same as each other. That's something she was warning about, something she picked up on, of course, that's something I think is sort of muddying Keir Starmer's reputation now. You know, voters may not necessarily be aware of the the details of Beergate, but it, it perhaps is it, it's tainting him. I think it is, and I certainly blew away a little bit of the odour of sanctity around mm. him. Listen, Andy, the interesting question about her, she has stood before, is how much she really, really wants it. It's a brutal business being leader of the opposition. She she very much enjoys spending a lot of her life in the constituency in Wigan. She likes mm. being uh, a northerner. She likes keeping away from some of the London hubbub. As leader, she would have to get rid of all of that. And it's a very, very hard, brutal job. But, you know, it's said a lot. For how much longer can Labour resist having a woman leader? You know, the Conservatives have had woman leader after woman leader. They've been more feminised than the Labour Party for a long time. And for a lot of people in the Labour Party, that is simply shameful. And so I think it might well be a woman. Wes Streeting is, I'll go out on a limb, is the single most talented person. He has it, you know, not just the backstory, but he has all the talents. He is very, very good on the detail of his health brief. He's across the numbers. He's across the policies. He speaks well and fluently. He's likable. He's got it all except for his gender. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think he's the he's the only one who doesn't get into a flap when they're sort of delivering their answers on those difficult questions. I remember asking him about Angela Rayner's comments during Labour Party conference where she called the Conservative scum. And he just said, Ange is Ange, which was a direct yeah. echo of how they used to say John is John about John Prescott, yeah. I think. Yeah. Not sure if it was Very deliberate, but, you know, he is of that Blairite ilk. Yeah. And he also sort of, I think he had a very straightforward answer to these questions about trans matters. Can a woman have a penis or what is a woman? I think he was very, very straightforward in his answers to those questions. So he does have that sort of camera, you know, in the clip of the moment quality that I think a leader needs. He's regarded by um, not just the hard left, but I'd say the left of the party generally as the most Blairite candidate. So he might have some trouble in that direction. Now, I mean, the rumours are, and these are only rumours, I probably shouldn't even be repeating them, but um, among among Labour staffers, that there are people organising already both for Wes Streeting and for Lisa Nandy. I don't know about any other candidates. But so so something is going on already. Doesn't mean anything will transpire at all, of course. Overall, I would think that Keir Starmer is likely to be the Labour leader at the time of the next election, and the way things are, likely to be Prime Minister afterwards. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, 
and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Well done. Great call and response there. Um, Our question (laughs) is from an anonymous listener. They ask, what do the Conservatives hope to gain from ripping up the Northern Ireland Protocol? So this is, well, it's not the dog that hasn't barked. It has barked perennially in many government briefings, but it hadn't yet bitten. But now we're hearing that it just might. This is the idea that the government might unilaterally scrap those parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol sort of pertaining to the checks on goods going from the rest of the UK into Northern Ireland. They've upped the ante following the DUP's refusal to enter into a power sharing agreement with um, Sinn Féin, which just became the largest party at Stormont for the first time. Obviously, the DUP sees, sees the protocol as an existential threat to Northern Ireland's place in the union and wants it drastically reformed. So the reports are that the government is about to unveil new legislation to undo the protocol or undo those checks on imports from the rest of the Mm. UK as soon as next week. So going back to our listener question, what is to gain for the government from doing this? Anoush, I would say that there are three answers. There's the official answer at one level, there's the deeply cynical answer, and then there's the medium ground answer. So I'm going to give the official answer would be what they hope to gain is to retain peace in Northern Ireland, they would say, because this seaboard so infuriates so many uh, unionists who don't understand why they're treated any differently to any other part of the UK in terms of trade and checks and so forth, that the possibility of a breakdown of, of order is is there. And certainly, the likelihood of them not being able to be an executive formed without fresh elections because the DUP will not take part in it as things stand. Therefore, they would say the entire Northern Ireland peace process, that's why we're doing this. And they would furthermore say, yes, it's true that Sinn Féin got the votes of the largest party in these elections. On the other hand, if you look across the board, 42, 43% of people still voted for unionist parties. They are, in percentage terms, against people who voted for nationalist parties. Uh, the largest group, because there's an increasing number of people voting in the middle. And therefore, Mm. they would say this is a democratic response to a democratic problem and a serious one. That's the official answer. The deeply cynical answer would be because it suits Boris Johnson under a lot of pressure to have a thumping big row with the EU. And Liz (laughs) Truss, thinking of herself as a future leader, it suits her as well. And that's what's really going on. And the middle ground answer, I think, would be that there's growing embarrassment inside the government about the fact that they signed this protocol and it clearly isn't acceptable, it's not working, and genuine frustration with the fact that the EU, in their view, haven't come up with enough clever answers. There are no clever answers, by the way. The EU haven't come up with alternative solutions because there really aren't any. Mm. If there's going to be a border, there's only one or two places it can be on the island of Ireland. Everyone accepts that's not acceptable. 
or or the sea border where the government now say that's not acceptable either. There are no clever, clever technical solutions. You know, if there were, then there wouldn't be a need for any borders anywhere in the world in terms of trade, at least, that, you know, clever electronic devices would be used to track goods and so on. But mm-hmm. that ain't where we are. No. So I think so. That's a, that's a confusing answer, but it's the the sort of most honest and comprehensive that I can give. No, no, it's a great answer. And what's interesting is actually this legislation that they're sort of threatening wasn't included in the Queen's speech. And what I hear is that the, there's there's this hold up behind the scenes, partly because of the difficulty for government lawyers drafting a bill that could potentially break international law. Remember in 2020, the government's top lawyer quit over the internal market bill. Remember that one? <laughs> because Absolutely. of Yeah, because of parts of it wanted to go back on uh, the withdrawal agreement relating to Northern Ireland. Um, but also the holdup is that there is a lack of cabinet agreement on this. Not all secretaries of state are on board with the idea. Have you heard similar, Andrew? I certainly have, though uh, Michael Gove, who's most often quoted and cited as an opponent, has said on the record that he's comfortable with the idea. Maybe he couldn't say anything else. Mm. Um, So I don't know how real the tensions are behind the scenes. I imagine they are. I mean, I gave earlier on the the explanation as to what the government hoped to gain from it, because that was the question. But I think I should also say that I think the downside is very, very serious indeed. Mm. Not only the obvious process of progress towards a trade war with the EU, which is where this like is likely to end, but also the damage to Britain's reputation around the world. I mean, you know, they've sent uh, a Northern Ireland minister over to Washington as Boris Johnson's special envoy to try to explain to the Biden administration why they feel they have to do this. But that in itself shows how worried they are about the American response, and they're right to be worried. The Americans in general, and Joe Biden in particular as an Irish-American, mm-hmm are very, very concerned about this. And post-Brexit Britain, as we all know, badly needs some kind of good trade deal with the United States. And if that's the price of all of this, then it's a very, very high one, not just for the Conservative Party, but for the entire country. Yes, because the threat from the EU side is that it could retaliate with tariffs on UK goods, and and we could end Mm. up in that sort of all-out trade war. And surely, I mean, surely the UK government doesn't really want to risk that, particularly as people's bills are already going up. Food is already costing people a lot more when they go to the supermarket. And also, we do need this united front with Europe as well as America with a real war, not just a trade war going on on Europe's doorstep. I don't know, Nush. I mean, are the people in the government, we wonder, who are so fixated on as it were, aggressive tabloid politics, that they really think this is going to help them in the red wall seats and win new Tory voters back to Boris Johnson. Do they really think that? I fear some of them probably do think that. Mm. Um, It seems to me that, by and large, voters, all of us, uh, look first to our self-interest and we think about our own situation, our own economic issues, whether we can pay the bills, our housing, our jobs and all the rest of it. And if people are thinking that way, than the notion of because of a Northern Ireland sea border, which irritates some people in Northern Ireland, being overridden and overriding national treaty, the, the thought that that all might end up where we are having a trade war or new tariffs with the EU, our nearby trade block, and at the same time are in very, very bad odour with the United States, mm. our big natural ally, in the middle of the first really serious European war since 1945, that all seems to me to be an appallingly high price to be to be paid. And mm. I don't think voters will like it. No, absolutely. But what's interesting is that Labour doesn't necessarily have a response for this yet. And you could argue they don't really need one. But 
I, I remember speaking to someone who is quite close to Keir Starmer in the party who was telling me they're still petrified to talk about Brexit. They are terrified mm. of those voters who who were put off because they felt that they were trying to rerun the referendum or try and undo Brexit in some way. So it puts a little bit of pressure on, on Keir Starmer as if, if, as if he wasn't under enough of it. He does put more pressure. On the last time I spoke to anyone from the shadow cabinet about this particular issue, the phrase that was used is, there is no sign of buyer's remorse in the electorate about mm. Brexit, and yeah. therefore we can't go anywhere near it. But I think that period is actually over. You can't have the whole area of our relationships as a country with the European Union, our nearest neighbours, verboten, out of court, as a political subject for an opposition party. That is not sustainable. And lastly, Andrew, I just wonder how you feel about this story, because it almost feels like deja vu, doesn't it? The big Brexit battles of, of years past. Does it fill you with sort of nostalgia or would you just rather they uh, they moved on? As a sort of working hack, if I never had to utter the words Northern Ireland Protocol again, <laughs> I'd be very, very happy. Um, it's a complicated story, mired in history, in detail, where the two sides use such different language. And, you know, it's a really important story, but it's not mm. an easy story, I think, for journalists to excite people about, candidly. And so, no, get rid of the whole thing. Not the, not the protocol, <laughs> but the story. Please. Please. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope some people in government have been listening to this podcast and, and accept your plea. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Anoush. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Andrew Marr. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.